Hi, everybody, and welcome to Therefore a Geek, episode 123. I'm Andrew. And I'm the Atomic Blonde, just with a deeper voice. You're also not blonde. I'm Blake Dirty Blonde. Like, toilet dirt blonde. Toilet, like, swirly toilet blonde. Yeah, yeah, shithead. (laughs) (laughs) We're off to a great start here. Oh, yes. Feel the love. Feel the love. All right, so this week we are going to get into some, again, some news topics. News. And then we're going to talk, we're going to poke dude's dude's brain a little bit on a few things. But uh, first, before we start poking brains, let's get into the news. We got all sorts of good news. We We got angry comic book shop owners, Nintendo loses a lawsuit, and people lose their bananas over a remake. Yep. And Andrew and I learned the the meaning of the word lenticular. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I can't use it in a sentence appropriately, but I, I at least now know what it means. Yeah, this was good. So this is referring to Marvel's legacy covers. Go ahead. I've got two articles coming out of comicbook.com. First one is that comic book shop owners are having issues with the sale of Marvel's legacy covers. What are their lenticular covers? So before we get into it too deeply, what lenticular means is it's basically those images. If you look at them at one angle, it's one image. If you rotate it a few a few degrees, you can see it. Look at it. It's another image. DC did did covers like this about three, four years ago now. Very successful, very cool covers. So now Marvel is doing it. Oh, I didn't know DC tried this before. So that's what Marvel's trying to piggyback on the success, I guess. Yeah, DC has done it twice, I think. Ah, okay. But the issue here is not the covers themselves, but in order to gain access to purchase the covers, store owners are required to meet certain order thresholds. Now, historically, at least what I have seen for variant covers, is you order X number of issues and you can get a certain variant. So a 1 in 10, a 1 in 50. The biggest I've seen is a 1 in 500, which I've I've got a fun story about that one. Mm. And typically... That's how variants have gone. In this case, Marvel has set the threshold by percentage of sales. So in order for stores to be able to even be eligible to order these lenticular covers, especially for certain titles like Hulk and Iron Man, they have to reach a 200% sale threshold. That means in order to actually order these books, they have to first order double what they normally order and then the covers. So here in the article, they've got an example. Say you run a store and you regularly order 10 copies of Iron Man. Marvel will ask that you double your regular batch in order to gain access to the lenticular, lenticular covers. So if your 10 regular customers all want the lenticular cover, then you'll have to order 30 copies in total. The 10 original covers, an additional 10 covers to hit the 200% sales level, and then another 10 because those are your lenticular orders. What I have a question is, how does Marvel, I guess Marvel already knows what your regular sales numbers or order numbers are already? Like, is it based on a kind of historical number that, oh, such and such store in Podunk? Well, so it goes... it. It technically goes through Diamond. And this is, again, part of the flaw of the direct market is that you have to order these books three months in advance. Right. So, yeah, Marvel can look back and say, you know, hey, you've you've, on average over the last year or or whatever their their metric for that is, you've sold X number of issues. And and they have that data available Ah, through, through Diamond. So, yeah, they know exactly how many issues you've bought of what. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So this is really turning off a lot of retailers because they've got to order 
200, 300% of what they normally order in order to get these covers. So basically Marvel's asking them to take huge losses on a ton of titles, 53 different titles as part of this Marvel Legacy relaunch. Are getting the lenticular cover treatment. Yes. Wow. And now, then we, we kind of like crunched numbers ahead of time because my first thought about this was like, geez, the little stores, because I have a lot of little stores near me. Right. Uh, I, I don't know if they can have the room to to handle that inventory, even if you are just selling, you know, 10 copies right. or, or you're, you're regularly selling 10 co copies and you have to go quite, up to 30 or quite honestly to afford because I mean, I've no, I've, right. I'm friends with several comic book shop owners. Mm -hmm. Comics themselves are a very small profit margin business. Right. So the amount that the the store buys it for and the amount they sell it for, they make change on the per sale. They don't rarely will they make single dollars. Right. On on a, on a particular issue. Well, like just doing the round numbers on it, if you have to order, let's just say thirty books total, in, you know, your your regular ten, your your double, your two hundred percent margin, and then your ten lenticular covers, and then you've got fifty three popular titles that's 1590 books so a as you pointed out that's expensive and b if you're not a big store that's tough on your floor space yes that's tough on your on your on your inventory space and i think it's interesting that you point out that comics are a low profitability or have a low profit margin I don't know if you have noticed this. I have. With the new craze in board games, comic book stores are switching over to, not switching over, but splitting their inventory space or their shelf space with board games on, at a fairly large clip. I, you know, I have not personally noticed that. I actually think for a while now, there has a fairly large segment of the market that has actually been split that way. Mm -hmm. I have tended to find only like pure comic shops, mm -hmm. but like listening to people talk and like message boards and things like that, especially like in the Midwest, it really looks like a co like combined comics and games shops is really more the way things are in the vast yes. majority of 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 the the country and there are and there you, are some uh, around here to be sure yeah I, oh I, and i can think of one like right off the top of my head up in newport news where you are that does this that they kind of split between comics board games slash tabletop games slash rpgs now there are a couple like near me that just focus on just comics right but there's a lot of like really small ones that even with a small inventory space small shelf space have board games kind of packed in there to try and pad their sales yeah i mean i can honestly i can think of very few that are purely comic shops now it's funny right. you're, you're talking about the, the floor space though mm -hmm. the shop i had my pull at for a number of years anytime i'd go digging through their uh, their back issue bins i would just come across just huge swaths of world war hulk stuff <laughs> and yeah. for one you and i have a little bit of a history with world war hulk and it just just at the time really just you know pissed me off sure but more than that i couldn't figure out why he had like hundreds of issues of this so finally once i got on, on better terms with the owner i asked him you know, i said richard what, what's going on with all the the hulk stuff and he's like oh it does like it's real easy he had a, a customer who's very well off wanted two one in 500 variant covers and rich is like well i'm not ordering 500 500 issues worth of stuff to get you the variants and he's like that's fine so the guy ordered a thousand issues of whatever to get these two variant mm. covers and because he didn't want to keep all the issues he just gave them to rich that's funny so right <laughs> so there were just there were hundreds of world war and i couldn't i couldn't figure out why yeah it was horrifying yeah it is that's terrible but at least you know you know he didn't eat that cost 
Right. That, right. That's, that makes me feel a little bit better. But what Marvel is doing here is making owners eat the cost, and it's just really peculiar as to why they did that. Because it's like, hello, these guys are what's keeping your industry afloat. But yeah, uh, I mean, and I mean, so Marvel has original has backed off of what their original percentages were. Originally, every issue was going to be two hundred percent. Now, some of them they've they've backed off. They're still they're between one and two hundred percent. But again, still on some of the 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 big titles like Hulk and Iron Man, it's still 200 percent mm-hmm. which is just not a a reasonably att- obtainable figure for most comic shops and we talked about little stores mm-hmm. i mean think about a store like midtown that could order 100 200 plus ish- copies of a, of a comic right i, I mean you did, you crunched the math if they ordered 150 of, of every of each of the 53 titles and then wanted right. to get you know an equivalent number of the lenticulars at 200 percent, that's over 23 thousand comics yes if they wanted to for all 53 titles yeah yeah it's, it's insane I it's like what you oh i, uh. I mean the direct, <laughs> the direct market is baffling enough but whatever marvel's doing here is right. just I, i'm somewhat dumbfounded yeah that's very weird now speaking of weird let's go to nintendo losing a 10 million dollar lawsuit over the wii remote Patent. Yeah, so this is interesting. So Mar, or, I'm sorry, Marvel, Nintendo has been accused of infringing upon a patent by a company called iLife involving their motion sensors and the sensors that are used in the Wii U, uh, the the remotes for the Wii U. Now I, iLife is actually doesn't at all deal in video games. They make sensors that for like sleeping infants or like old people basically to see if they've fallen. Right. Yeah, I was about to say this sounds like a medical technology company. Yeah, it absolutely is. However, Nintendo apparently has used some of this technology to, in order to develop their their Wiimotes. Mm-hmm. And back in 2013, iLife sued Nintendo, originally asking for $144 million. And then just at the end of August here, they were given, they were awarded $10 million. Mm-hmm. So, all right, $10 million seems like a lot, and $144 million may seem unreasonable, mm-hmm. but at least according to the research I've, I've, I've been able to do, Nintendo has sold 115 million Wii and Wii U's combined. Right. In fact, the Wii, the original Wii, outsold both the PS3 and Xbox 360 by about 15 million units. Really? I yep. didn't know that. Okay. Not, not, not combined, but, but individually each. Okay. The Wii U sold so. about sold 101 million units approximately, mm-hmm. and the uh, Xbox and play, and PlayStation each sold about 85 million. Okay. Uh, the Wii U has done significantly worse, only, only selling about 14 million units. Oh yeah, that's bad. Well, it's also it's effectively it's really very similar to the same system. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Anyways, so if you mm-hmm. do the math at a 10 million dollar settlement for 150. Million units. Mm-hmm. That means Nintendo's only paying slightly more than eight cents per unit sold. Right. To me, that seems a little on the low side. Yeah, I would agree. I was about to say, like, considering the numbers we're dealing with, ten million is really not a lot. I mean, one hundred and fifteen million would still, or if they get the the full one hundred and forty-four million, it'd still mm-hmm. only be one point a dollar twenty-five per unit right, sold. Right. Now, keeping in mind that console manufacturers sell the consoles at a significant loss for the first number of years. Mm-hmm. Still, like they've sold 115 million units based on using this company's technology. And given some of the lawsuits that we've seen in recent years, I mean, especially in the last year and a half involving patent infringements, I'm kind of curious as to why this one was so low. I mean, Apple has Apple has either lost lawsuits or settled out of court 
for almost $3 billion in patent infringements in the last year and a half. That's an impressive sum. They they settled with Nokia for $2 billion. Jeez. And then there was a lawsuit for just over $6 million, or sorry, $600 million, and one for just over $500 million based on patent infringements. Hmm. You know, it was funny. We were talking about profit margins for comic books, and then you mentioned how you operated a loss, or the companies operated a loss with consoles. I wonder what the profit margins are, because like, as you said, it comes out to about eight cents a unit you know i wonder how much of that chops into the profit they make on the on the unit itself well, well yep. to, to be clear, they sell the console at first at a loss. Right. In subsequent years, the console sells at a profit. Mm-hmm. It's those first couple of years that that the console okay. is sold at a loss. Got it. Yeah, I, I want to. I, I don't. I don't have exact figures on that, but I do know that initially, and and this has happened almost since the beginning of consoles, that the console itself is sold at a loss to start with. Mm. Alrighty. So moving on to some movie news. This is what I found interesting because there seemed to this seemed to kind of create cultural allies out of generally considered cultural enemies yeah but it is but it but it focuses on one of my favorite books lord of the flies is to be remade with an all-female cast this is from the independent about four days ago so i want to say it was the 31st or the it was the 31st of august the basic news is warner brothers had announced it's going to make an all-female adaptation of lord of the flies with scott mcgee and david siegel lined up to direct and i looked up scott mcgee and david siegel and apparently they are a, a team that have worked on a number of movies together that i haven't seen starting in like 2001 i mean they've done a few prior but let's see, 2001 the deep end b season uncertainty and what macy knew uh, these are actually they've actually worked on all of them that are together birds past structure i don't know what any of these are like i don't i've never seen them I don't know what they are. They both look like young guys, but never seen it. So I don't, this would probably be one of their first big mainstream entries. Anyway, uh, the film will be based on the well-known William Golden novel, which depicts a group of boarding school boys that are stranded on a desert island without any adults. It had been previously adapted by director Peter Bork in 1963 and by Harry Hook in 1990. I'm pretty sure I saw the 1990 version. I'm almost certain. Because I know I had to read this book in high school. And at least in my school, I don't know about yours, you'd read the book and then the teacher would like spend like a day or two showing you a film adaptation of it. Uh, we did that. I did not, however, ever read Lord of the Flies. Okay. But that, that but, kind but, of pattern is familiar to you yes yeah well, even, so, even did it with shakespeare it was fun sure sure i think i remember doing it with yeah we did do it like romeo juliet and othello i think anyway i got to watch the zeffirelli romeo and juliet on laser disc <laughs> and the the uh, the disc tray almost came out so far it almost uh, my teacher almost got it in the mouth i remember watching the Macbeth uh by done by roman polanski in junior in junior high school nice that was pretty badass. It was she, she could get away with that because that, for whatever reason, that particular English class was all male entirely. It just, that's just the way it played out. It was, I don't think, done intentional by the school, just scheduling the wires crossed, so that's how it wound up. Anyway, so needless to say, the creators in Warner Brothers are really quite excited. However, certain American writers and commentators on kind of different sides of the political spectrum have kind of gotten bent out of shape over this in a way that I found somewhat peculiar. But anyway, so people who I also haven't heard of, like Roxanne Gay, have said on Twitter, quote, an all-women remake of Lord of the Flies makes no sense because 
dot, 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 the plot of that book wouldn't happen with all women. Uh, Jessica Valenti, who I actually am familiar with, uh, I believe is a writer for The Nation, wrote, quote, the all-female Lord of the Flies will just be a group of young women apologizing to each other over and over till everyone is dead, end quote. And it goes on and on and on, they quote at, at length with the... Uh, independent article, but I also ran across a podcast with conservative commentator Ben Shapiro, basically saying the same thing from a conservative perspective. So it was interesting to me that this kind of caused the, the kerfuffle that it did, because when I was having discussions with the girl and our mutual friend, uh, Chris, the first thing both of them said to us when I, when I was said to me when I brought this up was, didn't they already remake Lord of the Flies with all women? It was called Mean Girls. And I was like, yeah, that, that makes that makes perfect sense to me. So I'm looking forward to this. I think this will be pretty cool. I, I think it's an interesting concept. I will, however, point out that later on in the article, even the author of Lord of the Flies says this wouldn't work with women. I understand that he's said that, but I'm still interested in, in taking it in a different direction because Golding wrote that in the 50s. Sure. I mean, like, I'm, I'm curious to see how... It, how the execution works out. Yes, yes. No, I, I completely agree. And I remember we were having the discussion about the woman who wrote the book that Mean Girls is based on basically said that women can be mean and as cruel and vindictive as boys or, or as men, but girls can be as mean and vindictive as boys can be. However, the methodology is completely different. So I actually think there is some room to to not do a obvious, you're never going to, you can't do a, a beat for beat, shot for shot adaptation of the original book. That wouldn't work. But you can take the concept. I think the concept lends room for, for experimentation and adaptation. Yeah, but at least the way the article makes that sound is it's not going to be a an adaptation. It's going to be a shot for shot. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Because yeah. uh, at least the last paragraph of the independent article is uh, the script is yet to be written, but McGee has said he and Siegel are, quote, super excited to put pen to paper. Release date and cast have yet to be announced. So we we will see. I you know everyone even in the comments like it won't work, it won't do this, it won't do that. You know what? Again, I, I find myself in the minority position here because I think this will be interesting to do. I think if you can do an all female Ghostbusters or even an all female Twelve Angry Men, which has been done at least on stage, I think you can you can pull this one off too. I I'd be curious to see how it gets done. Plus, I really like the book. Yeah. So that being said, over the weekend the fortieth anniversary release of Close Encounters of the Third Kind happened, and uh, I went. Did you get a chance to go out and see this? I did not. I have not. I actually have not gotten a chance. Well, kind of obviously, I haven't gotten a chance to go out to the movie since the kid was born. Mm. But I mean, I have seen Close Encounters, and it is certainly one of the classics in in science fiction, especially you know like modern modern science fiction. I think that's for sure. It was funny because a couple of my friends had brought up that this was coming out. And I, I had seen Close Encounters of the Third Kind when I was very young, right? Like when I was first introduced to like E.T. So I'm, I must have been in like single digits or just like 10, 11 when I saw it yeah. and didn't really think much of it. And it was never a movie I went back to. However, I had a couple of friends who were very much anticipating the upcoming 40th anniversary release. And then a friend of mine, I was texting to see if you want to hang out. And he goes, oh, no, I'm going to go see Close Encounters of the Third Kind tonight. And I went. Oh, crap, that's happening. So I went out and got a chance to see it. And now having seen it, like, as an adult, it is a well-done movie, but 
me personally, I was still kind of left wanting at the end of it. Now, I'm not saying it's a bad film, but this is one of those movies that didn't reach me the way it appears to have reached a lot of other people. I want to say I saw it probably, I think it was one of the movies I, wa- I started watching when I first moved to Virginia, so maybe 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. I think it was the first time I saw the entire thing. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I really enjoyed it. I don't know that I necessarily am deeply in love with that film. Right. But yeah, I had a, a good time watching it, and I can see where other films have taken bits from it sure no it's obviously a very influential film especially on the visual end yeah uh the story is interesting because it like for me it peaks really early and then dips into a trough and then works its way back up to a climax which i thought was interesting yeah it's kind of an interesting means of storytelling because it's you see the aliens like within the first 20 minutes or the alien ships i should say sure so, and it's this very dramatic sequence that goes on for what feels like 10, 15 minutes. And then there's a big come down where all the characters, particularly Richard Dreyfus and the woman, Terry, ooh, shoot, I'm missing her name, just are trying to come to grips with what they've seen. Yeah. And then you've got this kind of secondary story with the government with a oddly placed Francois Truffaut in the mix. And I feel like, you know, that emphasizes the French, I guess, involvement a lot just because Spielberg really wanted Francois Truffaut in the film because I think he really idolized Truffaut. Yeah. Oh, it was, it was Terry Gar. Yeah, I mean, Truffaut was one of those early French New Wave directors. He's about, I think, 12 years older than Spielberg at this point. And Truffaut's first movie, The 400 Blows, comes out in 1959. And it kind of, it's him and Goudard and Melville and a number of others who are part of that French New Wave. Yeah. They were like film critics that become movie makers. And I think Spielberg really wanted him in there. And Truffaut did a really, really good job, but it was, it was kind of interesting just having him in there. Yeah. But like, I personally found the whole sequence where the, you know, the government's trying to figure out what's going on. They're trying to figure out where the aliens are going and how they're trying to communicate with us and how do we cover this up. I found all that far more interesting than Richard Dreyfus losing his mind and family and everything and then leaving. I don't know. That was just me. I don't know. I thought I thought Richard Dreyfus was, was kind of compelling. Mm. He was definitely good. I just don't know if I cared about the story arc compared to what Truffaut and the others were doing. But that's just me. Okay. Well, I mean, that's, a, that's fair. Yeah. But other than that, I mean, visually, it still holds up pretty well which I, I enjoyed. And it's so, like you said, it's so iconic. It's kind of interesting when you go back and you hear the music and the, the see the alien ships and the, the tonal exchanges and the, and the hand gestures that have been, as you pointed out, used and reused by so many other filmmakers, either in parody or in homage in the last 40 years. Oh, so it's nice of, to go back to the beginning. One of my favorites, is, you're talking about the, t- the tonal communication, mm-hmm. is, and, and my father was the one who caught onto this, at least caught me onto it, was in um, the James Bond film Moonraker. Mm-hmm. He's got to punch in a, a, a key code, mm-hmm. and the key code is the the, the tones from. <laughs> and like I remember watching it, my dad goes, "Are you kidding me?" <laughs> I remember the Simpsons episode where the uh, Springfield thinks it's got an alien, oh, and it just Burns. turns out to be turns out to be Mr. Burns uh, hopped up on drugs. I love that episode. And like the little band, like the the school band is there, and the the instructor is there, like conducting them, and they play the five tonal sounds. I thought that was that was really good. And then I think Leonard ne- was Leonard Nimoy in that episode, or no? I don't. Was rem- that the mono- Was that the monorail episode? I don't remember. The part I love about that one is at the end. Like Smithers jumps out and goes, no, wait, it's Mr. Burns. Don't kill it. And groundskeeper <laughs> goes, oh, it's Mr. Burns. Kill it. 
<laughs> oh, was it Willie or uh, Mo who were like, break its legs? I think was Mo that, was I, break its legs, but yeah, Groundskeeper Willie was like, oh, it's Mr. Burns, kill it. Yeah, because at first, like, it brings us peace and love, break its legs. <laughs> like, that certainly, that certainly sounds like a Mo thing to say. Yeah. Oh, that was a great episode. But yeah, that was Close Encounters of the Third Kind, 40th anniversary. Uh, you know, it was all done up to, I think, 4K, or so they nice. said. You know, so it was, it was really quite beautiful. And I know they're, uh, doing, they're doing that for Blade Runner here soon. Oh, that'll be sweet. We should, we should do something. That's like another that. one that holds up beautifully because of all the spectacular miniature work. It's Practical one of, it, effects, dude. It's one of the, it's one of the, it. it's one of the best Blu-rays I own. Like, best-looking Blu-rays I own. Mm, mm, excellent. Okay, so that being said, I think that's good for me. Talk, hey, talk, talk about movies real quick, though. You went and saw Valerian and atomic blonde i did because so we mentioned did, it last what did you and think? so i really enjoyed atomic blonde it is based on a comic book i have not I, read i noticed where you started that one what i mentioned valerian and atomic blonde and you immediately went to atomic blonde let's go to atomic blonde because i really enjoyed it <laughs> and it is based on a comic book called the coldest city which i haven't read but i'm gonna hunt down i really do want to hunt it down and i gotta give charlie's theron a lot of credit she really carries the film well James McAvoy is great. John Goodman and a couple other actors are really wonderful supporting actors. It's a fun... It's funny, because I thought it was going to be like a John Wick-style movie where Charlie Theron just runs through dudes, and that's not yeah. the case at all. It's really? much okay. more of a... It's not. It's much more of a Cold War spy thriller set days before and leading up to the fall of the Berlin Wall. Really? So that sounds interesting. Yeah, very 80s. The music is fantastic. And it's also like a little more realistic than, say, a John Wick is. You know, John Wick is much more like a video game where he's just running through dudes, whereas Charlize Theron will only like fight two or three guys in sequence, but they're like brutal tough fights. Okay. And there's a sequence really worth the price of admission for this film where she is protecting a East German defector in an apartment building and she fights four dudes up and down a staircase, like an apartment staircase, like three, four floors up and down a staircase. Yeah. And it is all done in one take. Wow. It is so good. It's so phenomenal. And it's brutal because it's not like, you know, it's not like Black Widow, like kicking a dude and he falls down and he gets knocked up. Like he'll get like uh, knocked down and he'll get knocked him up. He'll like she'll like elbow a dude, punch a guy, hit him with something heavy and then he'll fall down. And then the other guy's partner will jump on her and she's got to fight him off. And when he fights him off, the other dude that she knocked down gets back up and starts kicking her. So it's super realistic. Yeah, there's and... a there's a similar se sequence like that in the second season of Daredevil. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's not one shot, but it's a lot of long shots. Yes. And yeah, I mean, it's just like he's fighting a biker gang coming out of this apartment building. And it's a good like 10 minutes of just beating the crap out of people because they just keep getting back up. Yeah, very reminiscent of movies like The Raid where they do these long takes or if you saw the original Korean Old Boy where there's the hammer fight down the hallway. But this one's actually more complex because it goes up and down stairs. Wow. And through different rooms. Nice. So, and then I think it goes back outside. It's really something. I would, I'm disappointed it didn't do as well as it did, but I, I wish, I would highly recommend it. And so Valerian. So we've talked about this. We all knew it was going to be beautiful. And I went through a couple different feelings about it. Like, this is going to be stupid. And then I was like, well, maybe I'm interested. And it turned out to be interesting at the beginning and then stupid at the end. It doesn't, it doesn't deliver with a payoff. And part of the problem with the film, I think the reason why it didn't do well, and I was watching a looper video on this 
and I believe they got this part right, is no one knew what the heck this movie was about. Like, no one knew what the basic plot was. So kind of, kind of like a John Carter problem? Yes, yes. I, and I, again, I think I had mentioned in previous podcasts that I was afraid this was going to be the next John Carter. Yeah, you, have, I don't, you have several times. Yeah, and I, I don't know how, I don't, think I, I don't think I hit the mark, but I've come close to that. It depends if the French market saves it. That's really, really what it is. Yeah. But the whole idea is that there was a battle about 30 years ago from the Valerian and Laureline point that caused the debris of the dead space or the de destroyed spaceships to fall on this planet and one particular ship like landed and basically destroyed all life on this particular planet and there was this in intelligent but maybe primitive species that was living there and the whole idea is that the survivors of this catastrophe have escaped and they're trying to bring the person who caused the catastrophe to justice and it turned out to be like Clive Owen and it's a really interesting moral conundrum because the whole point is that Clive Owen is this commander of a fleet losing a battle and he's going to deploy this like killer weapon to destroy the enemy flagship, but he knows the enemy flagship will land on the planet, killing the inhabitants. Right. And so on on face, that sounds like a really interesting sci-fi moral conundrum. Yeah. And you would be like, oh, this sounds pretty good. But the execution is so freaking bad at the very end. It, uh, the whole when it finally comes to a head, when you finally figure out what's going on. That's unfortunate. The execution is silly. The dialogue is goofy. It's a it's a real serious moral question that they don't take any kind of care to do nuance with and then the bigger problem is throughout the course of the film you get sidetracked with these little adventures that don't lead anywhere that just distract from the main plot of the film that look nice but are kind of silly and then there's rihanna who's a terrible voice actress she just can't deliver a line and she's like a blue jellyfish alien she kind of looks like a blue gooey version of the alien that got birthed in the car from men in black a while ago <laughs> Okay, yeah. And so you don't really see her much. You just see her or you just hear her and you're like, wow, she's a really bad voice actress. Yeah. Good thing she doesn't last long in the movie. But Ethan Hawke's in it and he plays like a digital or not a digital pimp, but like a futuristic pimp. And he's pretty fun. He, yeah. he seemed like he had fun for like the week he was filming. Nice. Yeah, that so, was it. So go see Atomic Blonde. You could wait for video for Valerian. Yeah. So it's funny because I'd actually finally gotten around to reading some of the Valerian comics. They've uh, they put out a couple of nice looking, reasonably priced hard covers that that, that yeah. bundle together, you know, several of the, of the stories. And I read the first the first of those hard covers. And I mean, I enjoyed it. They're a little on the goofy side side sure they're, and i mean they're very much 1960s comics they're french right. obviously but they're not that, that doesn't seem to absolve them of some of the the, the goofy nature of, <laughs> no. of 1960s comics but they're enjoyable i can definitely see like the the proto heavy metal kind of right influence on them so but yeah, I mean, I definitely want to check out more of them. So, I'm, but I'm also a little disappointed to hear that that they didn't execute this film as well because there there's a lot of material here that could be used. That obviously, yeah. that obviously, like I said, that the premise the premise was excellent. The premise was an excellent premise. It just I just clearly think they executed it poorly. It's also so. interesting that that Luc Besson had an issue with executing a more a story like that, right? Because I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, because it's been a long time. Like Leon the Professional, mm -hmm. like really hits on some of those. It does, but I I don't know. That was 25 years ago so who, who knows right but you figure that someone who was able to, to execute it properly before shouldn't have that much of an issue shouldn't but yeah, I, mean, I guess maybe it was just the scale of this movie where you've got this kind of big sci-fi high octane high special effects epic vice you know yeah that's a very possible. grounded real you know movie set in the bronx that's possible i don't know but it was it was a little and I'm again I'm saying this as a Besson fan who I do really like his movies. Was, this was a little disappointing. But 
I would still say go see it for a sci-fi. If you're a sci-fi fan, it's still worth you know watching some of the the goofiness in there. Okay. It was kind of so that was that was it for me. I think the only other thing I can mention is the local museum had a dinosaur exhibit that was very nice, and I love dinosaurs, but it was ridiculously overpriced. And I just got to stop going to this museum. But I did get a couple of good books out of it. Nice. I got uh, Dinosaurs, How They Lived and Evolved by Smithsonian Books. And then a book, uh, Patagonia, Mesozoic Reptiles. Patagonia is a region in Argentina where a lot of interesting dinosaur finds have turned up starting in the early 90s. And they turn out to be some of the biggest ones uh, science has ever found. So like the Giganotosaurus, the giant super predator, Argentinosaurus, Titanosaurus, all these kind of really interesting finds have come from Patagonia. So it's a book just on Patagonia. And it was fun. The exhibit was fun because dinosaur names are really tough. So it is funny watching like people try and read Giganotosaurus and pronounce it Gigantinosaurus. Yeah. And then I'm sitting there going, should I correct them or just let them? Yeah, yeah, I was like, no. And then other than that, I picked up a game, Worthington Games put out New York 1776, which is a, a game based on the New York campaign between Washington and the British where the America was one of the first major engagements of the Revolutionary War. Yeah. Where the Americans were like super outclassed. So basically the as the British you player, you've got to try and pin Washington down and finish him off. Whereas if you're the Americans, you gotta just do hit and run, hit and run, hit and run, and then escape. Yeah. So that it looks really good. And then I got the expansion to this game called Evolution, or it's a game where you, you basically play as animals and you play cards and you have different evolutionary traits and the whole idea is you eat food from a watering hole but you can create carnivores and eat your opponent's species and uh the expansion is called flight so now you can be a bird death from above nice uh probably the biggest thing i had going on this week is i bought a new laptop so oh, that, i'm jealous because i need to do that too it, mostly so i can uh do podcast edits in a prompt fashion yeah so i what really kind? Uh, i bought a lenovo two-in-one so it's one okay. that it'll fold into a tablet right kind of cool oh that's yeah i was thinking of getting an alienware but then my brother was like don't do it they're, so they're, now just, they're really expensive for what you get yeah that's what that's what i've been hearing so i guess I'm, I'm gonna go back to the drawing board and start shopping around i haven't done it i haven't really taken it seriously like i have a solid state drive that's been sitting on my shelf for like three four weeks that i haven't installed yet so i just need to get on it yeah you should definitely get on that on the solid state drive thing at least now i, I realize i I came home the other day from work, and uh, I was sitting watching the kid take a nap uh, for t- like two, two and a half hours, and I was listening to my audiobook, and I was like, yeah, that was really great. I was like, And it was, I got nothing done. It was, <laughs> it was not productive, and it's like, I really need to get stuff done. So uh, I did a little bit of research and, and got the laptop, and I was like, it was like, 750 it wasn't bad at all uh so mm-hmm. i got i got myself a nice little little setup i got a new and i got a i was trying to do edits on my old laptop which is overheats as slow as dirt and i was doing using a regular mouse mm-hmm. and the lack of precision was just pissing me the ever-loving hell off so i i bought a i bought a i have a gaming mouse on my desktop so i bought a, i bought an identical gaming mouse for my my new laptop and uh, i did the last i finished the edits for the last therefore a geek podcast on the new laptop and and it works really nicely for that uh, purpose so i'm, I'm pretty happy with it very nice so all right folks if you like what we do make sure you head over to thereforegeek.com check out our blog post on our podcast you can find us on itunes soundcloud youtube and stitcher and you can follow us on facebook instagram and twitter so once again i'm andrew i'm duder and you've been listening to therefore i geek